The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. So in the past 25 years or so, atheism has found a voice in our culture. In 2006, Richard Dawkins, who is, uh, I'm sure you may have heard of his name, but he is a British biologist and professor at Oxford. Uh, he published his atheistic uh, work entitled The God Delusion. And in that book, uh, Dawkins contends that the belief in a creator was a delusion refuted by scientific evidence. Dawkins is said to share a popular atheistic sentiment Uh, And this is how it goes. When one person suffers from a delusion, it's called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it's called religion. Here are three of Dawkins' conclusions from his God Delusion book. He says, number one, atheists can be happy, balanced, moral, and intellectually fulfilled. Two, he says, natural selection and similar scientific theories are superior to a God (coughs) hypothesis, and the claims of intelligent design uh, as to explaining how we got here and how the world and the cosmos exist. And three, he said, atheists should be proud, not apologetic, because atheism is evidence of a healthy, independent mind. Christopher Hitchens published his book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, in 2008. These are going almost 20 years now. Part of the movement... uh, called the New Atheism, includes Hitchens, Dawkins, and Sam Harris. If you've heard the name Sam Harris, Sam wrote a a book entitled A Letter to a Christian Nation. And Daniel Dennett, a philosopher, these four men are called the four horsemen of this atheistic movement. In 2007, the Lilly Endowment funded a survey by Trinity College and revealed that 15% of Americans now cite no religion when it comes to their religious uh, preference. That was 2007. The Washington Post summed up their findings back then by saying, the only group that grew in every U.S. state since 2001 were people saying they had no religion. The survey says this group is now 15% of the population. Today in 2023, that percentage is up to almost 30%. Granted, saying that you have no religion doesn't necessarily make you an atheist. It does point to the rise of atheism uh, in our Western culture. So today, we're back in the book of Psalms after Michael began last week. And we'll be in Psalm 53 this morning. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 53. We're also in Psalm 14 because 53 and 14 are almost Uh, identical. But in this psalm, God is going to say of the atheist, you are a fool. And he's furthermore going to tell us some things about him or her, about the atheist who who rejects the existence of God. So we're going to read Psalm 53. If you have your Bibles turned, I'll be reading from the CSB. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. 
God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on God. Then they will be filled with dread, dread like no other, because God will scatter the bones of those who beseech you. You will put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. All right, as we begin to look at this psalm, let's begin by noticing the fool's declaration. It starts off the psalm. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. The person who declares that there is no God is a fool. At least that's what God says about this person. Where a fool is a person who lacks judgment, who lacks reason, who lacks the ability to, uh, to understand uh, things. Why would the Bible say that a person who rejects the existence of God is someone who lacks reason, who's someone who's a fool? Because the Bible is absolutely clear and repeatedly attests to this one fact. No human being at any time and at any place can plausibly deny the existence of God. Now let me see if I can make that clear from the things that Paul says in his writings to the church at Rome. He's writing to the church at Rome, and this is what he says in Romans 1, beginning with verse 19, speaking about, about people and God, or people who have rejected God. He says, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. Now, Paul builds that argument that people are out without excuse when it comes to denying the existence of God because he's quoting from Psalm 19, I believe, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse of heaven proclaims the work of God's hands. Day after day, they pour, pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge, talking about creation. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, we don't hear them speaking. Yet their message has gone out into all the world. And, and their words have gone to the ends of the earth. Human beings simply cannot deny creation's witness to the existence of a creator, to the existence of God. From galaxies to giraffes. From uh, light to ligament, from DNA to dinosaurs, every bit of it declares God's glory, his power, his moral beauty, his creativity, his wisdom, his goodness. All are on display for everyone to see from every generation, from every corner, every spot on the globe. Only, listen, only an, un, an unreasonable person would say there is no God. Only a fool, someone who lacks judgment, someone who lacks the ability to reason would say there is no God. Richard Dawkins is a fool when he says natural selection and similar scientific theories are superior to the evidence of intelligent design that drips from every spectrum of creation. When we look around and we see design in everything that we see, including your incredibly designed body, 
with its DNA that, that replaces cells and gives you sight and hearing and everything else. When we look at that and, and, and Dawkins says, there is no creator behind that. All of that just comes from nothing and happens by chance circumstance. He is a fool. The one who claims there is no God is declaring his foolishness, his lack of reason, his lack of judgment. There's an old myth that an atheist went to court uh, to get a judge to rule that atheism needs a holiday just like Christians have Christmas and Resurrection Sunday. The story goes, the myth goes, the judge dismissed the case saying, you already have one, April 1st, April Fool's Day. God continues with the fool's character. First, he says of their character, they are immoral. Look at the next verse. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The atheist argues that goodness and moral standards can exist somehow apart from God. But reason and logic, they, they, they dismiss that because they tell us um, they tell us that without a God to give us right and wrong, unless there is some force outside of creation creating all of this to give us right and wrong, there cannot be right and wrong. And so the Bible substantiates that the fool is immoral. Here's an example. Ricky Gervals. He's an atheist. This is what he says. Being an atheist makes someone a clear thinker, a fair person. Atheists are not doing things to be rewarded in heaven. They're doing things because they're right, because they live by a moral code. Now follow me in your thinking, right? The problem with Ricky's thinking is that if there is no God and everything that exists is, is the, the happenstance of random chance happenings and pointless, meaningless, in a pointless and meaningless universe, if that is true, then there simply cannot be a right and wrong. We might develop a societal norm or a societal consensus of how we ought to live. And we might punish people who are not willing to live alongside what the majority of us think is right and wrong. But there is no objective right and wrong. Killing Murder cannot be objectively right or wrong. Rape cannot be objectively right or wrong. Stealing, plundering, whatever it is, if there is no God outside of ourselves who has created all of this, then there is no moral right or wrong. Now, saying that the atheistic worldview provides no basis for the existence of good and evil does not mean that atheists today or in days gone by, have no sense of right and wrong. In fact, Ricky Gervais in his quote proves that they have a sense of right and wrong. But where does it come from? It's because it comes from the fact that they have been culturally influenced by, by the historic view of God and the historic morality of the Word of God revealed in Scripture. This provides them a residual basis for believing there are moral categories of what is right and wrong, but their worldview does not. You need to follow that, okay? The atheistic worldview gives us no objective right. There cannot be an objective right or wrong. Now, the, the majority of us can come together and say, we're going to declare this to be right or that to be right, right? But there is nothing outside of ourselves, that says this is right and this is wrong. So whatever, whatever we do is right or wrong. You know, when you watch the movies, when you watch the movies that they produce of, of, of eras gone by 
And, and you look at the killings and, and, the, and what happens in those movies and, and, and just the, the lack of any kind of morality for the people. And, you know, it dawned on me, or occurred to me as I'm working on this this week, that those movies are probably right because the influence of Western Civ and the influence of the Word of God on culture, which we have seen over the last, you know, however many hundreds of years in Western Civ, right? It, that, that wasn't there. So there was no moral objective as to what's right and wrong. So I can kill you, I can rape you, I can enslave you, I can do whatever I want to you. There is no right or wrong. Now, I've made the statement that atheists, even though their worldview doesn't give us a right or wrong, they can have a sense of right or wrong. And they can have it because they've been influenced by culture, by the Word of God. Or they can also have it, I think, because the Bible tells us that even when we haven't had His Word, He's written His laws on our hearts. I mean, He's given us a conscience. Now, folks, it's very easy to harden your conscience. It's very easy to sever your conscience, to ruin your conscience. It's very, but that doesn't mean that you haven't had one from the beginning. That doesn't mean that God hasn't written His law on your heart. So, so even though atheists can't point to their worldview for right and wrong, there is something inside of them, I think, that they know right and wrong because God put it there from the very beginning. This psalm says that when men deny God, they live however they want, and they are corrupt, and they are vile, and they do not do good. I might even suggest that many people claim atheism to deal with the guilt of their own immorality. The guilt of the immorality that, that, that they sense because God has placed his law within their heart. So I think a lot of people embrace atheism to try to deal with the guilt that they're feeling from violating the law of God in their heart. Number two, God says of the atheists, they are suppressors of truth. Verse two, God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. God looks down on humanity to see if any of these fools will turn to him and seek him. And uh, he says, is there anybody that will turn to me? And his answer is, no, they've all turned away. I personally think, follow me here, you can disagree. I personally think this is poetic hyperbole. I I don't believe that the the psalmist or God literally means everyone. I I think it's sort of like we say, everyone's doing it. And, you know, and we mean just about everyone's doing it or we mean... The vast majority of people are doing it, but we don't necessarily mean everyone's doing it. When we say that, we use hyperbole. I think that's the case here. For instance, Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro over all the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So there are people who are seeking after him. I think he's talking about the atheist. But even when it comes to the atheist here, I don't think he means that there's never an atheist that's going to stop suppressing truth. There's never an atheist that's going to always turn aside from him. Back to the Romans passage in Romans 1.18. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven. I didn't read this verse a moment ago. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since they, that what can be known about God is evident amongst them because God has shown it to them. The reason why so few atheists 
will, will turn and seek God is because they're actively suppressing the truth of God that's in their heart. They're actively... Su- Listen, if you're going to be an atheist, you've got to cauterize your reason because you're going to look at creation. You're going to say, oh, this came from nothing. You have to suppress the truth that's obvious to you that design demands a designer. That when there's such... Then there's such design to all of this. God, there has to be a God who has designed it. So the reason why so few atheists will turn and seek after God is because they're actively seeking to suppress the truth. But listen, I believe that God is still willing to save any atheist who turns back to him. And I'll say something else, that I believe that God in his mercy at times, for whatever reason he desires, maybe in response to our prayers, he might send a blinding light or a big fish to an atheist to arrest him in his hardened or her hardened state, that they might somehow question the suppression of truth that they're doing. There are many famous atheists who once used their skills to promote atheism and have now become followers of Jesus. Probably one of the, uh, the greatest intellectual minds of our century is Alistair McGrath. And Alistair McGrath went from being an atheistic evolutionist to becoming a Christian an apologist, a Christian apologist and author. Fools are those who suppress the truth that is in their heart that they know is true. There is a God, and you're going to have to stand before him one day. And a fool is someone who suppresses that truth. But I'm convinced, I'm convinced that because they are suppressing, and listen, I'll say more about this in just a moment, but they are suppressing. Let me go on. Third, God says they will grow more and more corrupt and less and less good. The psalmist repeats himself again, and he says, all alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. I think the reputation, the repetition of this passage, which is just the same thing he just got through saying, I think the psalmist is trying to say, that, that atheists are going to go from corrupt to more corrupt, from immoral to more immoral. They're going to, they're going to progress down this line of suppressing the truth to become more and more wicked. So back to the Romans 1 passage. In verse 21, it says, For though they knew God, they knew Him in their heart, they did not glorify God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Talking about creating idols out of, out of animals and people. Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded amongst themselves. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served that which has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. That passage says pretty clearly that God gives people over who continue to suppress the truth. And in giving them over, they go from darkness to greater darkness, from immorality to greater immorality, from corruption to greater corruption. This is the character of the fool. He is immoral. He suppresses, she suppresses the truth, and she or he will grow more and more corrupt. Then God notes the fool's evil. Verse 4, will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on God. God now calls the fools evildoers. 
And they're evil because they consume God's people like bread. You see, the atheist, the the one who rejects God, he also rejects God's people. These people are corrupt and vile. They don't seek after God. They're evildoers. And he says, they oppose my people. They seek to destroy my people. That's what it means when it says they want to eat my people. He says that they, he, they want to destroy God's people. And indeed, throughout the generations, we see that those who reject God, not only reject God, but they reject God's people and they desire to destroy God's people. People who teach a tolerance of all beliefs will almost invariably oppose tolerating our beliefs. They cannot tolerate our Christian beliefs that says there is a God outside of us. He has declared what's right and what's wrong. And and that's the end of it, right? That's final. God says what's right or wrong. They say, hey, we cannot tolerate that. So they tolerate everything except our beliefs that says there is a specific right or wrong from God outside of ourselves. Alistair McGrath that I mentioned just a moment ago, I found this extremely uh, riveting in my thinking. Uh, This is something he, he said, the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. The greatest intolerance and violence of that century, that would be last century, were practiced by those who believe that religion caused intolerance and violence. I want to read it again. I should have put it up there. I I should have put it up there. Let me read it again. Try Try to follow along what Alistair says. The 20th century, last century, gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes in human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of that century was practiced by those who believed that religion caused the greatest intolerance and violence. The fool, the atheist, the evildoer hates God's people and he seeks to eat them like bread. Then God goes on and he tells us the fool's in, verse 5. Then they will be filled with dread, dread like no other, because God will scatter the bones of those who beseech you. He's writing to Israel, but he's writing about the fool. You will put them to shame, for God has rejected them. They may kill us, they may eat us like bread, but they will not escape the condemnation of God. On that day, they will be filled with dread as they stand before God at his universal judgment. The psalmist says that God will scatter their bones, a seeming reference to destroying them in death. He will reject them and seal them in their shame. We will look on them with contempt. Psalm 14, which I told you was so much like this one. Here's where it's a little bit different. Psalm 14 adds a little here. Here's what it says. They will be filled with dread, talking about the atheist and the evildoer, the the one who rejects God, because God is for his righteous ones. They may have frustrated and oppressed God's people. They may have eaten us like bread, but God will be our refuge. The psalmist makes it clear. There is a certain demarcation. A very clear demarcation between those who are a fool, those who reject the the revelation of God in his creation, those who reject God and those who are God's people, those who have loved God. There is a clear demarcation. And the bottom line, this is not Jimmy, this is the word of God. God has rejected them. They will not inherit 
eternal life. They will inherit death, eternal separation from God, while God's people will receive the opposite. We will receive life. We will receive the gift of eternal life and immortality with God. The psalmist ends with this, the fool's hope, which I will add, I I think, is our hope today. And you may wonder why I'm calling it the fool's hope, and I'll tell you in just a second. Verse 6, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The The psalmist has in mind the nation of Israel, the fact that people are eating them like bread, eating God's people like bread. One day God's going to rescue them is what the psalmist, what the psalmist says. And we know that God in his new covenant that he made through the Lord Jesus, that not all of the nation of Israel was the true Israel. Romans chapter 9, not all of Israel is Israel. The true Israel has always been, always will be the people of God by faith. Under the first covenant and under the new covenant, the the true Israel are the men and women who by faith have loved and followed God. Now there was the nation of Israel, but it wasn't the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God were those people who who are part of the nation of Israel who loved God. But it also included even back then Gentiles like like uh, Rahab and uh, like Ruth who loved God, right? Who put their faith in God. So um, in a way, God has already delivered us. This, this has already come to pass. What the psalmist is praying for, he's praying for Israel, the nation, to be delivered. But the true Israel has been delivered. Jesus, Jesus has come and he has delivered us from the penalty of sin. He came and died for us and rose for us. He's the first fruits, the scripture says. And all of us will follow suit just like him, just like our deliverer. When God told Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, this is what he was talking about, that Jesus would come and Jesus would deliver us from our sin, from death and uh, from, uh, from the wages of our sin. But there's another sense in which we wait for him to deliver us. And I think this is the sense the psalmist had in mind in verse 6. Um, he'll deliver us from this broken world to a world that he's planned forever. I love this. I mean, I, I think about this all the time. This, this is what God will deliver us from he's going to deliver us from this broken world and man i love this world i love the beauty of it i love the relationships of it i i love this world but this world has been broken and god's going to deliver us from this broken world so here's what paul says again to the to the church at rome in chapter 8 he says yet what we suffer now in this world is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal to his children who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present and up until the present in 2023. And and we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us, a foretaste of the glory to come. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. 
We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including new bodies as he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something, we don't yet have it. We must wait patiently and confidently. Confidently. I call this the last hope of the fool, right? I call this last point the fool's hope. You know why? Because even though this is written to God's people, I mean, there's, there's hope for the fool to become part of God's people. There's hope for the one who has rejected God's initiative to repent and to turn back to him. Now listen to me what I'm going to say right now. Yes, it's absolutely true. The fool hardens his heart and he hardens his heart and he hardens his heart and he gets harder and harder and harder. Now, this just occurred to me. We're talking about forging steel this morning in Sunday school. And the more you heat it, the stronger it gets. Right, Jesse? Is that what I heard or something like that? It gets harder and harder and harder. You can harden steel. Same thing's true with your heart. You can harden it and harden it and harden it and harden it. And and statistically, this is why if you haven't come to Jesus by the time you're 30, statistically, you only have a 15% chance of ever repenting and coming to Christ. Why is that? I mean, has God set, has God made an, an arbitrary, I mean, has God just, has God declared that to be so? No. It's because what happens to you is if, as you get older and you harden your heart and your heart and your heart, it just gets harder and harder and harder. Can somebody in their 80s come to Jesus? Yes, they can. Statistically, though, it's going to be really hard because they've hardened and hardened their hearts. But, but, The fool's hope in our heart is that one day God will deliver us from hell. God will deliver us from the valley of Hinnom and he will restore to us. He can restore to us. Even the fool who's rejected him and rejected him, God is willing to forgive if you'll repent. But you got to repent. You got to repent. Before I close this psalm out, I want to, I want to, I want us to talk about how Paul uses Psalm 53. Because did you know he uses Psalm 53 in the New Testament? In Romans chapter 3. If you want to turn to Romans chapter 3, we're going to be there for a few minutes. But I want to show you how he uses this psalm in Romans 3. Um, He uses this psalm to make a point to all of us that there's none of us righteous in our own merit. So let's look at verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we better off? Not at all. For we have all already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it's written, and here's where he quotes the psalm, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace that they, uh, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now in this original context, when David, not David, when the psalmist, whoever he was, or maybe it was David, I don't know, but whoever, whoever the psalmist was that was writing, when he was speaking about the fool who denied the Lord, 
He, he was, when David wrote Psalm 53, or whoever wrote Psalm 53 was speaking, he was talking about the fool. He was talking about the one who denies God and rejects God. He wasn't talking about himself. He wasn't talking about God's people. As a matter of fact, throughout the, throughout the psalm, he juxtaposes the fool with God's people, right? So that's the context there. But now Paul uses this, and he uses this psalm along with some other psalms, and he universalizes these words, and he says to all of us, yeah, the fool has done that, but all of us are guilty of sin before the Lord. He uses a psalm to say all of us have fallen short. All of us have fallen short of the righteousness of God. All of us have sinned against the Lord, and the wages of all of our sin is death. Paul goes on to say that though we all fall short of God's righteousness, because all of us have sinned. Let's go back to, let's go back up just a few things. All of us have done wrong. All of us have turned to our own way. All of us have done what is wrong. All of us have had feet that have been swift, maybe not to shed blood, but to follow after sin. We've all done our own thing. We've all turned astray. Isaiah 53. But Paul goes on to say that though we all fall short of God's righteousness so that there is no way for us to become righteous by our efforts, okay, there is a way for us to be righteous. And the way for us to be righteous is the way of faith. So look at verse 21. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. In other words, you know, we can't be made right by keeping God's law. We can't. We all fall short, right? But there is a way, he says, that we can be made right with God. Verse 22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus, the Messiah, And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God has, was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So righteousness, everyone, doesn't come by getting an A-plus in God's moral law. You can't get an A-plus in God's moral law. How many of you would want, how many of you would want the secrets of your heart revealed in front of all of us this morning? How many of you would want all the things that you've done in secret revealed before us this morning? I don't think any of you would, right? Because we all know that there's a lot of yuck in our hearts, right? It's not about, it's not about keeping God's moral law. I can't do that. You can't do that. But Jesus did it for us. And so God comes along and he says, righteousness is something I'm going to give you. It's something I'm going to freely give you. It's not going to be earned by you. It's not going to be deserved by you. It's going to be given to you when you put your faith in Jesus, when you put your faith in me, when you trust in me, when you love me. Hebrews 11.6, 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God because the one who comes to him must not be an atheist, but must believe that he exists and that they must believe he rewards those who seek him. Remember, the fool is the one who looks at everything God has created and said, all this came from nothing. There is no God. There is no God. Righteousness is given to us. Not when we say there is a God and we do our best to live for him. You ought to do your best to live for him. But if you're trusting in, in, in if you're trusting that you're going to live a certain, a certain level of goodness that God will accept, then you've misunderstood because all of us fall short in the wage of any sin. The wage of any sin is death. The wage of any sin is to be lost. So it's not about you meriting God's favor. It's about you saying, God, I fall short, but I receive your grace. I receive your son. I, by faith, I accept what you've done for me, and I love you, and I want to follow you. Abraham believed God, and God declared it to him. You are righteous because of your faith. I say to every one of you this morning, if you want God to declare you righteous, you too must, by faith, trust in him. You must stop trusting in yourself, stop trying to earn God's favor, and trust in in him. So today I'm finished from this psalm. The psalmist, I wish I'd looked up to see who wrote it. Maybe it was David. It wasn't David? Thank you. I, I didn't write that in my notes, so I wasn't sure. So in this psalm, David is saying, hey, there's my people, God's people by faith, and there's, there's the ones who reject me. Today could be your day. You know, I know, I know most of you in this room are already followers of Jesus, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. This is your day. This is your day to ask yourself, am I going to be a fool or am I going to be one who puts his faith and trust in Jesus? And I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to put your faith in Jesus. And for the rest of us who have already put our faith in Jesus, we've already said, God, there's nothing good in me. I can't merit I can't merit your forgiveness. I don't even want to merit your forgiveness. I want to, I want to trust you. If that's you, that's our, what's, what's the takeaway for us today? I'm going to tell you, Dick's scripture reading is, I mean, rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks for the Lord's mercy to us. Give thanks. Be filled with joy that he has accepted us in his gracious salvation. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.